Welcome to a News Laundry podcast. This is Global Summits. Where are we going? Hi, I am Biraj Swain and this is News Laundry podcast. Global Summits. Where are we going? First, let's listen into UB40, the super hit reggae pop band of 70s and 80s from United Kingdom, Birmingham. They were nominated for Grammys four times and for Britain's best British reggae group. They sold over 70 million albums globally and are reckoned as one of the best-selling artists of all time. I'm sure you're wondering why am I telling you all this and why did we open with music today? Well, because the 80s hit reggae band UB40 is a product of social protection. Their name is an acronym for unemployment benefit which they got after filling up a form number 40 from the UK's Department of Health and Social Security. They bought their instruments with their savings from unemployment benefits they received and that is the topic of our discussion today universal social protection why now after our freedom of assembly and association episode that is episode number 2 some of our listeners have asked why we picking up specific themes and not just summits well these themes are core issues on the table at the summits and these themes cast a long shadow on your and my shared futures your and my children's future too that's why there is a new spec to angus deaton economist from princeton has been awarded the nobel prize for economics last fortnight his major work is using consumption data in india to analyze poverty trends and development interventions he has also been an advocate of social protection and the recently concluded sustainable development goals summit which we discussed in our last episode also advocates universal social protection in fact International Labour Organization has advocated a global social protection floor too. In this episode, we shall discuss what is social protection, its working definition, why is there such a focus on social protection now from food and agriculture organization to international labour organization to sustainable development goals. All seem to repose their faith in social protection. We shall understand the specifics of the Global Fund for Social Protection proposal from one of its original authors. We'll listen from our panelists if there is any economic and moral case for social protection. We shall try and understand what has been India's performance on the social protection front and the political economy arguments. How does it measure up with other countries in comparison? We will also push our experts to tell us if universal social protection will ever be a reality. We have a kick-ass panel to discuss this. Before I bring in the panelists please remember programs like this are possible because of independent media when corporates pay corporates agenda is served when people pay your agenda is served please support news laundry please support independent media help us to keep news free we have the original author of global social protection fund professor sanjay reddy from new school of social research new york let's listen in from him first professor reddy welcome to the show uh- Hello Viraj very nice to be with you Please tell our listeners in simple words what is your working definition of social protection and what is the crux of your global fund proposal Viraj some years ago when thinking about the lack of social protection in the world a very large number of people not only in India but in sub-saharan Africa and Latin America and other parts of Asia who are lacking inadequate protection against catastrophic 
illness, uh, natural disasters, uh, drought, and other sorts of calamities that could affect them, in addition, of course, to the structural uh, uh, poverty, which they very often suffer from. Uh, one of the ideas that um, uh, we put forward was that of what we called a global reinsurance mechanism, which later on became the Global Social Protection Fund. And the idea of the global reinsurance mechanism was essentially to provide a way to encourage countries and to enable countries to put in place social protection for their people much more easily. Now, in a large country such as India, which has very different regions, which do not always experience the same type of risks at the same time, it's possible for the country to engage in some degree of self-insurance. So where there's a drought in one part of the country or a natural disaster, it's not always the case that there is in another part of the country, though, of course, even in India, sometimes these risks come together. And so India has programs such as the Employment Guarantee Program, which have that as an underpinning, as an underlying uh, aspect of their logic. But with smaller countries uh, in other parts of the world, and indeed in South Asia, that may not be as straightforward to do without some element of global support. So our argument was that uh, we ought to have a global institution which can insure the insurers. This is what's called reinsurance in the private insurance industry. But it would have the social dimension uh, that we uh, uh, described. So in particular, uh, countries would, uh, if they had significant take-up, significant demand for social protection from their populations in a given year, the ability to go to the global fund and to seek additional support uh, as an entitlement. They might pay a premium for that or the premium might be paid on their behalf by the uh, international aid donors or international institutions uh, as part of a new compact to facilitate what one might call, I think, um, global social justice. So that was the basic idea. And uh, India's example and experience was very much in mind that programs such as Employment Guarantee, which have had a beneficial role in India, uh, and of course, which have to be designed in the right way, the details always matter here, the setting of wages, for example, or the use to which people's labor is put and so on. But to programs such as Employment Guarantee, which have been a success in India, in providing social protection to people can and should be generalized throughout the whole world uh, with appropriate attention to context. So I understand the uh, economic calculation that your friends, uh, uh, Dr. Olivia D. Shooter, the ex-Special uh, Rapporteur for Right to Food, and Magdalena Supalveda, the ex-Special Rapporteur for uh, Extreme Poverty and Human Rights, the calculation they did was for the 48 least developed countries. The corpus that is required is just $20 billion from the rich countries and, like you said, the international solidarity support. And if they put in upfront these countries from their own gross domestic product and allocation of 2 to 6% per country, then there'll be a social protection fund available for all these 48 countries to draw from. But in our first episode, Sanjay, Professor Reddy, we discussed the financing for development. And one of the issues that kept coming up is Number one, what is a non-negotiable public good? 
that is, is social protection a non-negotiable public good? And number two, the kind of negative role that the big four, the rich countries, placed at Addis Ababa. So what do you think is needed and at what level to make this a reality? Where is the theater of action? When the global financial crisis struck, government stepped into proper banks, and that were deemed too important to fail. The same logic must now be applied to basic social protection, because I think people are too important to be failed, isn't it? We've seen since 2008 financial meltdown being invoked time and time again by states, especially the rich states, to act tremendously selfishly and miserly. So your thoughts, Professor Reddy? Well, indeed, uh, we estimated, of course, using back-of-the-envelope calculations only, that the cost of establishing a global reinsurance mechanism or social protection fund would be uh, one-half of one percent of the GDP uh, of the least developed countries, which would be really a vanishingly small amount of global uh, GDP. And uh, so it's not, I think, very easy to see what is the economic case uh, uh, or the financial case against establishing uh, such a thing. Uh, but of course, uh, the Addis Declaration on Financing for Development as a whole was something of a disappointment, and I understand that uh, there was very little interest on the part of the rich countries uh, for any type of imaginative proposal. So what has actually come about is really a, a, a collection of existing ideas which are rather tepid in nature. Uh, now, this Global Social Protection Fund is just one example of a broader range of possible imaginative proposals that we could think of, not all of which would require significant financing, but certainly financing is needed in some of these cases. And I think there has to be a popular movement which calls for them. Uh, if this is left to technical experts, then the kind of declaration that actually emerged uh, in uh, Addis is likely to be the sort that continues to dominate, which is not going to change anything. We really need to have the kind of movement that existed uh, around debt relief in the 1990s, with the Jubilee 2000 movement, which brought together civil society uh, organizations, north and south, uh, to demand debt relief for poor countries. And that did succeed in changing the political climate, enough to create a kind of debt relief, very inadequate, but still... Uh, 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 there was debt relief which took place as a direct consequence of that political demand. So I think that uh, in this case as well, there has to be a popular movement which, um, which uh, emerges that uh, makes the Global Social Protection Fund or other such proposals their demand. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Reddy, especially at this early hour. For our listeners, it is about 7.30 a.m. at New York when Professor Reddy joined us for this recording. Thank you so much once again. Thank you very much, Biraj. Like I said, we have with us a kick-ass panel, some of the leading voices, not just of India, but globally for this discussion. Professor John Klammer, eminent sociologist, working on intersection of culture and development, championing a moral case for social protection, is joining us from United Nations University, Tokyo. Welcome to the show, Professor Klammer. Thank you so much for joining us this late from Tokyo. Thank you, Viraj. It's a pleasant any time of the day or night. Nilachal Acharya, senior researcher from Center for Budget and Governance Accountability, a Delhi-based think tank with pro-publica agenda. Welcome to the show, Nilachal. Thank you, Biraj. Nice to be here. Deepa Sinha, co-convener, Right to Food campaign, an economist and also a leading voice in Right to Food 
issues. Welcome to the show, Deepa. Thanks, Suraj. And last but not the least, eminent economist, in fact, a leading voice and a regular panelist on Ravish Kumar shows and budget analysis, Professor Praveen Jha of JNU. Welcome to the show, Professor Jha. Thank you very much, Viraj. Professor Jha, ILO says there are 73% people in the world, especially in the regions of extreme poverty, that is South Asia and Sub-Saharan Af Africa, living without any social protection. What is social protection and why is everyone reposing faith in social protection globally now, especially from ILO to FAO to SDGs? The idea of social protection is a very old one. Now, if you look at the policy making across the globe, possibly one can think of the poverty laws of UK, England then, to be one of the first significant social protection measure in modern times. However, in a more significant fashion, most analysts date Bismarck's 1870s as the moment when it was taken seriously in continental Europe and through a variety of other measures over time. This has been important in policy discourses all over the place. Now, what is social protection? You will hear multiple voices there. Definitions have been expanding over time. ILO has... Uh, what is your definition? My definition would be any kind of protective, preventive and promotional mechanism against all kinds of social and economic risks. Now, that of course is as broad as you can get. Right? Now, as I was telling you, ILO has some nine heads, it has added a tenth head to it. OECD has something similar, World Bank has a similar notion and so on. But there are significant differences also along these. So, in a sense, fundamentally, if one wants to put it in a very simple fashion, it is against the risk of being born in a context which is vulnerable. It is talking about your day-to-day -day existence where you get thrown into all kinds of vulnerabilities, even if you are structurally not located to begin with in a vulnerable situation. So in terms of both structural and conjunctural, you can think of the whole range of vulnerabilities associated with daily existence. And how can we think of mechanisms which can ensure people that these can be taken care of without leading to outcomes which can be extremely distressing. Uh, starting with such a notion, now where exactly do you want to draw the boundaries of it is something which has been a matter of considerable debate. So for instance, let's say when we talk of hunger, which is one of the more basic needs, uh, food and deprivation from food, uh, what do we do about that? Now, many would argue that maybe this is the most important component of the idea of social protection. You can think in terms of social needs such as deprivation uh, relating to education, deprivation relating to basic health and so on. Ideas which were championed by UNDP for instance, uh, very, very elementary deprivations and how do we deal with that. We can put those in the basket. So it is something where countries have taken very different measures uh, and different conceptions. So to, horses for courses. Yes, yes. So that is how it has been. Uh, but fundamentally, as I said, this is something for which 
there has been a very strong case for quite some time. In fact, you know, UDHR was one of the first very significant document to talk about it. So for our listeners, UDHR is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights drafted in 1948, which is considered as the master document for the dignified existence of human beings in the universal fraternity. And for our listeners again, OECD has been a recurrent theme across all our episodes. OECD is the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, which is the 34 richest countries, and India has an observer status. Yes, Professor Chha. Right. So, in fact, the Philadelphia Declaration was the foundation of UDHR, right? And 1944, in that sense, was uh, a remarkable year where you had three uh, very radical documents. One was Philadelphia Declaration. Uh, then we had the Beverage Committee Report, which became the foundation of the welfare state in United Kingdom. And subsequently, it kind of spread all over Europe. Professor Jha, this is an explainer series. So are these links available? Because I'm sure our listeners yes, would yes, love I mean, to I, follow. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that these are easily accessible. And then the same year, you had uh, a remarkable book by a remarkable social scientist called Karl Polanyi, and the name of the book was The Great Transformation. So if you look at the common concern of these three very significant publications of that year, Philadelphia Declaration, Beverage Committee Report, and Polanyi's uh, Great Transformation, uh, you can see a very, very profound foundation of the idea of social protection being at the center of economic and social policy making, at the center of what any modern society should look like, and so on. So in that sense, you know, uh, I'm trying to emphasize this point that it's not new. You know, all this discussion about MDGs, SDGs, in many ways we are reinventing the wheel, right? So these, these have been there for quite some time. It's just that we need to pay much more serious attention to what we have been probably talking about for centuries now. Uh, Vipa, do you think, uh, Professor Jha thinks it's not new and the case has always been there, but I, I think the literature actually says that the world did take a wrong turn. The Thatcherite economics and neoliberal policies did sort of make the, made the state rescind from investing in the poor. What are your thoughts? Opening taking remarks? off from uh, what Professor Jha was saying, it, it is true that this is uh, not new at all, and especially in Western Europe, there have been social protection policies, definitely post-war, post-depression. We've seen uh, a number of models that they've given us. And like you said, the world did take a turn, and we do see uh, withdrawal of the state since late 70s, 80s, much more in the 90s and 2000s in the developing uh, world. But I don't know if, I, I don't feel optimistic that the current discussion around social protection is really going, is questioning that economic model. I think within that model now it's becoming more and more obvious that there are many failures and that we cannot continue like that. And therefore this is kind of a palliative and add-on that's being discussed about protecting those. Hold your skepticism, we'll come back to that question and we'll listen to it in detail. Nilachal, opening remarks? Yeah, well, uh what Professor Jha mentioned is all about, I mean, social protection is not at all new at this juncture. It's been uh, started with Bismarck's uh, period and uh, even now. See, what is the most important concern is that social protection nowadays is all about it's a schematic approach of addressing all those concerns, which actually not at all sustainable at this uh, period, at this juncture. And uh, what is required, what 
the suggestion from uh, Sanjay Professor Reddy is all about having a global social protection fund is exactly what is needed. And in certain, uh, I mean, in a period where we are living in an integrated world and uh, where the social protection is... Uh, International is solidarity. Solidarity. And for that, how to do that and what would be the modalities is a different we'll question. Welcome to probably. this house. Yeah. Professor Klammer, your thoughts, especially since you are the only non-economist and the sociologist in the panel today? Oh, that's an embarrassing situation to, to be in then. Well, I, I think... You know, introductory thoughts, a couple of things. I mean, one is I'm glad, Viraj, that you mentioned the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, because I think that, you know, even if it doesn't spell out, uh, you know, the necessity exactly of, of social protection, it certainly implies it very strongly. And it's worth knowing, noting, of course, that the declaration has been extended in a number of directions subsequently, uh, with, with, you know, addition, additions and expansion of, of social and cultural rights as well. Um, I mean, the other issue, of course, I think, is the moral case for universal social protection. I mean, in an ideal world, I mean, I think one would like to think there would be such protection. And I think that itself needs contextualizing in terms of, of budget, since our, our economists are here. Notably, that if you look at the way in which governments actually spend the money they collect in taxation and the money they collect from people they've asked to vote for them, uh, the, the kind of imbalances frequently in budgetary expenditure are, are so very remarkable, including, for example, the difference in many countries between the amount spent on defense and the amount spent on various forms of social protection. Looked at from that point of view, it, you can possibly make even a stronger argument that it actually is a responsibility of governments to provide that kind of social protection out of the budgetary uh, in, intake that they are getting attract from their own electorate. Thank you, Professor Klammer. Deepa, Guardian mentions the Michelle Bachelet Committee, and for our listeners, Michelle Bachelet is the current president of Chile. She used to head UN Women. She's a trained doctor, and when the military junta was ruling um, Chile, she was also imprisoned. So an, an amazingly inspiring story, an amazingly iconic, inspirational person herself, Michelle Bachelet. Her, the committee headed by her made a case for social protection, which was followed up again with invariant versions by Professor Sanjay Reddy and also the United Nations Ex Special Rapporteur, one of your collaborators, Dr. Olivia D. Shooter and Magdalena Zupulveda. They've all championed for social protection. The ILO calculation says about 2 to 6% range, which means the developing and the developed countries uh, would actually need much less than 2 to 6%, since the 2 to 6% range is for the least developed countries. Yet there is so much of miserliness that we witness when it comes to the allocation. Why is that? What is the economic case? And why is the is there a case for the miserliness at all? I don't think there's a case for the miserliness at all. And going back to what I was trying to say earlier, Therefore, again, that this entire discussion on social protection, as long as we don't question the larger economic model at the same time, I don't see much optimism. Because like if you're talking about how expenditures are allocated, we, are, we also need to talk about how revenues are raised. Take the case of India. Every year we see more than 500,000 crores uh, of rupees 
going away as tax exemptions mostly for the rich. To the super rich. To, to the super rich. So we are also not having such a great progressive taxation system. We are not raising revenues. And all this fits into this larger model again, which says that too much taxation is bad, too much expenditure is bad, that fiscal deficit is bad. And all this is bad for what? It's bad for growth. And growth, what kind of growth is not there in the, the discussion fetish. at all. So that growth fetish is still there in spite of talking about universal social protection. And I think as long as there is that fetish where growth is still the most important goal and then you do little things for people who are left out of the growth uh, story, we won't really move forward. I think it's time we question the nature of growth itself, which is what Deaton also talks about mm -hmm. since you mentioned him. Uh, for our listeners again, this is again a, another recurring theme in all practically all our episodes. The cognitive dissonance, the difference between the practice and preach in international development discourse, national development discourse, and as Deepa rightly mentioned, the uh, meta-narrative, the larger narrative of the economic and development pathway that the world is taking. Um, Professor Jha, any economic case for miserliness? in the post-meltdown world? Not at all, not at all. There is no case whatsoever for economic miserliness vis-a-vis -vis social protection or for that matter, whatever we consider, the decent... Didn't Manmohan Singh famously say, paise ped pe nahi ugte? Uh, Manmohan Singh ji ko uska kaafi khamiyaza bhugat na pada. Or, uh, and for our listeners, this is a sarcastic one-liner about the price he had to pay for that. A corny comment about money not growing on no, Fundamentally, you see, if you look at the world, and uh, just something as simple as the following. If you look at the world between, let's say, 1950 and today, and look at simply the per capita income growth, right? Now, if the per capita income has been growing, okay, and it has grown in a pretty impressive fashion, right? Now, what could be the case that share of that income going on social protection is going down, right? So that's a trend. Is that a trend? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that okay. is a trend. That is a trend. So if increasing you, you, per capita so you, income, yeah, but uh, yes, the investment yes. in the poorest yeah. going down. If you look at the total allocations for social protection as a proportion of GDP, as a proportion of per capita GDP, whatever, right? You can see that that, that is something globally. This is something which is not rising. And I mean, I just can't understand what could be even the elementary arithmetic, when you try and say that, look, our per capita incomes have gone up, but we don't have any money, right? Just look at, look at the richest part of the world, I mean, continental Europe, for instance, and there is an attempt to whittle it down. Look at, for instance, the country which is economically the most powerful, United States of America, where the median income of the working class actually has gone down, right. and you do not have any additional compensation in terms of social protection, etc., even on something which was uh, considered quite inadequate by most analysts, which was Obama's healthcare initiative, you ultimately have a compromise uh, which has been considered by many as a failure. Right? So, a country where, I mean, the country has grown at a rate of 5% per annum over a period of some 40 years, right? But real wages of workers between 1967 and 1911 actually have marginally gone down. You can say that... 1967 and 2011. Yeah, 1967 and 2011, it actually went gone down. 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 This is uh, the calculation by... Not even flatlining, actually no, no, decreasing. It ma marginally gone down. It's not a dramatic decline. But, but imagine, I mean, here's a country which is economically the most powerful, 
and the calculation which I gave you just now is from Professor Steglitz, right? So, and the medium income, you know, that is of the working class, for instance, 90% of workers actually are worse off, right, over the same period. So, what are we talking about? If you look at issues of inequality, etc., again, stories are extremely distressing. Basic point that I'm trying to make is, why is it that attention to social protection cannot have a positive link with your per capita income? Right. If per capita income has been growing, at least you know, there should be a proportionate increase, if not complete, if, if, if not one-to-one -one monotonic relationship, at least one can argue yes. that there should be a proportionate increase, and why not? And so economically, there is simply no case uh, not to have robust policies of social protection. And again, I'll remind uh, our listeners that if Bismarck could have done it in 1870s, which was considered quite significant, at per capita income levels, which probably, I mean, I have to check this fact, but probably were less than what India's per capita income is today. And just compare the scale and misery, okay? Uh -huh. In, uh, in, in, in both these countries at comparable times. And, and, you know, it just seems bizarre to me that anyone can argue against uh, not having adequate resources. So that's the first argument against anyone who says that uh, there's, you know, an economic case yes, for, not for, for miserliness. And I think this is, this is a perfect segue, considering News Laundry is actually a media critic, media watch, platform which also does new satire and Clothesline is one of the most highly watched uh, consumed um, program and what Professor Jha just said is actually irony just died in international development economics and public policy allocation. Professor Klammer, I think I have heard variant versions of what Professor Jha said from you also saying that how 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights was the most progressive document and we've seen regression in most of the international documents written thereafter. How do you make sense of this newfound miserliness and this case being made against social protection allegations? Well, it's interesting that if, if you look at welfare states generally, if you look at the European welfare states, there's been a fairly systematic erosion of uh, social protection in, in all sorts of respects. And uh, this is, of course, worrying, and I think it has to be placed in the context of what people usually call globalization. I mean, the way in which uh, forms of marketization for certain forms of you know, international capital have begun to essentially call the shots in relation to labor, in relation to labor protection, in relation to migration, in relation to access to education, and all sorts of things. And I think, in a way, what you've got is a contest here between the kind of principles uh, really laid out in the, in the Universal Declaration, you know, in the succeeding documents, and the pressures of this kind of marketization, which I think is spread into any number of areas of society and tends to undermine the kind of idealism that is really uh, embodied in those documents. I think to have that idealism always before us is a very good thing because it provides us with a sort of real measure, even if uh, individuals or governments don't live up to it. The problem is, I think, that that idealism is so very easily undermined by other kinds of economic forces which actually work against it. They, they are, in fact, quite contrary to the fundamental principles that were laid out in those foundational documents. And that we're at a kind of juncture at the moment in which we see that contest working its way out. And unfortunately, I think largely in the favor of the marketization model, 
not not in favour of the of the principles that were embodied, and you know, are still principles which international society refers to, but have somehow lost their traction in in the light of those wider economic forces which have eroded them. I think that's true in Asia, and I think it's very true across most of the world. It's certainly true in Western Europe. As you look at the history of the welfare state over the last 20 or 30 years, you've seen this very clearly. Um, privatization uh, has become the norm of many of the services that were previously assumed to be you know, the, the responsibility of the state to provide to its citizens. Deepa. Uh, we've, heard, we've seen that the Indian Federal Supreme Court has actually struck down the resource inadequacy argument uh, in response to the right to food litigation, saying that resource in inadequacy cannot be a reason to cut down on the food programs, nutrition programs. So I think the Indian Supreme Court has actually made the most important moral case for it. Yet we also see skepticism around the moral case for it. Um, we've heard about from Professor Klammer also that the moral case doesn't exist. But you, being part of the Right to Food campaign, what are your uh, thoughts? I think the moral case definitely exists. And that's where, say, for example, the Right to Food campaign originates from, from the fact that there are hungry people in a country where there is enough food. There couldn't be a bigger reason for why they should not be hungry people. And that's what the Supreme Court pointed out also in, repeatedly in its judgments, that when there are uh, millions of tons of food grains lying in state go-downs, you cannot explain people dying of starvation, you cannot explain people being hungry, you cannot explain half the children in the country being malnourished. I think that's where all our economic arguments also originate from. There's a very strong moral uh, responsibility that the Constitution of India has given the state, that the UDHR has given the world, and we cannot lose sight of it. And which is why we need to continue to talk about inequality, need to talk about the way we are going forward as a society, and not just about a few who are left over and who are embarrassing us, and so let's try and do something for them. Professor Klammer, I heard you mention this over and over again in Japan also, that uh, extreme inequality mutates democracies into oligarchies. And we've heard Professor Jha and Deepa talk about extreme inequality and how public policy becomes Marie Antona kind of responses in India mm. and the world also. Um, do you, uh, you've also, considering the fact that you also are a voice on culture and development, do you think social societies which invest in social protection cause for better fraternal relationships and more so, uh, caring nations? And is there, is there also a caring aspect for, about the rich and the poor and the fraternity that uh, comes out of it? or? Is that, is that something which is too tenuous to even be part of any conversation from a purely cultural and anthropological point? Okay, well, I mean, I think, I think it might be hard to give a, a hard and fast empirical answer that would satisfy everybody. But I think on the whole, the evidence points to the fact that your argument's basically right, that where, where you have greater levels of social solidarity that emerge from uh, social protection either delivered directly in the form of you know, benefits are actually built into the way in which a system, a social system operates. Uh, you, have, you have a whole range of benefits. You have less visible inequality. You have less crime. You have less apparent, you know, jealousy or kind of class conflict between haves and have-nots because even the have-nots have, you know, relatively good access to fundamental resources. And in fact, I mean, Japan, where I'm speaking from, seems to be in some ways a, a, a case in point where... Uh, 
you know, there is there is almost universal access to education, to uh, social housing, if necessary, to and to medical care uh, across classes completely. And, uh, you know, this is paid for out of taxation, general taxation, although uh, personal income tax here is very low. It's only 10%. Most taxes are raised from corporate taxes. And, you know, you've been here, so you've probably seen this. There, there are fairly high levels of uh, social harmony, um, you know, very little outstanding uh, examples of gross inequality. Inequality does certainly exist here. So I think if you took cases like this, you, you could indeed create an argument that, in fact, that investment, if you like it, in social protection, far from being a drag on an economy, actually creates conditions under which people can flourish personally, but also then are motivated to contribute society which they see is taking care of them and if you put that together i think actually you could make a good economic as well as moral argument for uh extending social protection professor Jha, you've actually been a very loud voice challenging the false divisions the manufactured divisions between economics and politics and you've always stated that progressive policies have fundamentally a justice base. How does that wash vis-a-vis -vis social protection and allocations, especially in India, since Deepa has already talked about the regressive taxation policy and Professor Klammer seems to be celebrating the fantastic taxation policy in, in Japan. How does all this wash vis-a-vis -vis the fundamental justice argument and the false division between economics and politics? As regards uh, you, the first part of your question, how does it... Uh wash in the Indian policy-making context. Clearly, for a while, at least we were making decent noise, right? We took inspiration from our constitution, Article 21, for instance, right to life, and the way it got interpreted in extremely progressive manner uh, during much of 1980s and part of uh, 1990s as well. All that, in fact, provided a very strong mooring to a progressive vision. Right? If you look at Article 39B, for instance, what does it say, our constitution? It says that a life of dignity where you have decent means to live. I mean, obviously, you can't, you can't uh, find anything more uh, uh, profound in terms of, in our constitution, in terms of building some of these ideas. Go back to Karachi uh, Adhivation of Congress, right? 1931 the Karachi session of Congress, it, it envisioned a fantastic social compact on very basic needs, on basic health, basic education, etc. These were supposed to be the founding principles of our economic and social policy making. Right? So there is no dearth of, uh, let's say, the, 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 the vision of the founding mothers and fathers mm. of the Indian uh, uh, society uh, as regards these ideas, you know, sort of, it was it was very well articulated, uh, and articulated repeatedly. It provided the foundation of uh, our uh, new uh, society and state after independence uh, through the constitution. We have stopped taking all that seriously. Mm -hmm. We just do not respect our constitution. Right. right. If we just take a few moments to look at what are the most powerful messages coming from it, you know, there is simply no case in terms of what our founding vision is. In terms of economics, 
you know, as I before, mentioned Before earlier, you start that, right. Professor Jha, you've also been a critique, and this is something I think our listeners should know, the whole economics industry of diluting definitions of dignity of life that Deepa also talked about, the definition of hunger, the caloric definition of hunger. You've actually been a huge critique of this uh, entire economic, new economic industry of, of uh, diluting everything and sort of myth-making of uh, and spin-doctoring a much more resilient and, and, and uh, happy and resource uh, happy country, which is not the reality. So also tell us a bit about that, that how that voice is increasingly becoming louder and then uh, why don't you locate this thing about us not taking our constitution and Karachi convention and all of this seriously in the current discourse. No, th that is where the larger political ideology, you know, and which is where I think what uh, John said about contestation, contestation of ideas, etc., what Sanjay was mentioning earlier in terms of uh, the uh, popular movements, unless you have a very powerful political mobilization, the same voices simply get sort of uh, uh, brushed under the carpet. So many of these things, for instance, the one stark example of what you mentioned uh, with respect to uh, what I have been a critic of is the poverty debate in India, right? The way it evolved and the way, you know, sort of we diluted the notion of poverty in ways which became ludicrous. And then we set up committee after committee, asking whether this should be the poverty line or that should be the poverty line, right? In the sort of some uh, four years, we had some three committees. <laughs> Why do we have that kind of, you know, almost a bizarre situation, right? So clearly, even those in positions of power, in positions of policy making, were feeling uncomfortable about the way many of the fundamental concerns were being diluted in ways which in fact impacted on their image within quotes, right? Every once in a while you had uh, uh, almost uh, laughable voices uh, where people said, no, no, five rupees is good enough to be the poverty line or 12 rupees is good enough or whatever, right? So instead of going back to the richer debate, richer conceptions, which possibly had better connect with our constitution, etc., right? I'm talking the debates in 1950s and 1960s, right? The way the Planning Commission and others engaged with the idea of poverty, minimum wages, minimum needs, basic needs, and so on and so forth, we have simply kind of sidestepped, brushed them under the carpet, and we sort of have got uh, into a situation where all these have been diluted in, I'm sorry to say, uh, ludicrous ways, right? So that's part of uh, uh, what has happened. Now, a good question to ask is... For yes. our listeners, what Professor Jha is mentioning is something that News Laundry has visited, Anand Ranganathan, and I have written about poverty debates and the ludicrousness of it, from Lakrawala Commission to the latest commission, the Rangarajan Commission, and even the sex score by NC Saxena and all, and how the de it's almost become destitution line and almost become... Uh, uh, starvation lines and no more poverty line with dignified life. But one of the things since News Laundry is committed to reclaiming journalism as a public service and media as a public good, I think and I hope Professor Jha you agree the media challenging these ludicrous lines has also become more and more important and we saw this fantastic example in 2011 and 12 when Pro Mr. Montek at the then Planning Commission Vice Chair was actually forced to go to TV studios after TV studios to defend this ludicrously. So I uh, would you at least give some credit to the media activism on this point? 
media activism on the whole to me has been disappointing in india it has been small it has been uh, cherry know, picked <laughs> yes once in a while you know you do hear sort of very uh, appropriate voices but then very soon it seems as if there is amnesia you you just lost it or uh, as deepa said the larger debate is forgotten and yes exactly yeah. exactly so you know unfortunately for the mainstream media it possibly is uh, something uh, which uh, is part of uh, a certain logic of the market how to sensationalize something get something out of it etc uh but not a sustained engagement with those issues i'm sure the voices uh, like uh, the programs that you are doing and i'm sure there are similar other programs where there is a sustained engagement but if you look at the larger canvas of media in our country unfortunately the story is too disconnected too far yes 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 that that is how i would look at it nilachal we always here how social protection as a concept was adopted from latin america and thanks for educating me that it's actually bismarck and continental europe which started it but i believe the current conversation is very much inspired by the bouquet of programs and progressive policies emanating from latin america we also read about variant versions from cash transfers conditional and uncondi- unconditional to food subsidies school meals pensions health insurance what are some of the shining examples of social protection in india what has been the trend of budget, budget allocations and how does it measure up vis-a-vis other economies well i mean obviously uh, the most important part is to implement any sort of social protection measures program scheme i mean the behind success of all these programs is all about public investment that is what budget is and uh, uh, we do have uh, success stories within india and even across countries of the world where uh, for example the public works program of mgnrega we have here in india and mgnrega is, is for mahatma gandhi yeah this is the uh, public works program employment generating program it's a mahatma gandhi national rural employment guarantee program where we started uh, this program in 2005 and it has uh, i mean a success story since then uh, uh, it's basically to create employment to create or to generate employment uh, in the rural households where this program actually provides an opportunity to the willing population or the people of the rural household who are willing to work at least 100 days in a year uh, and uh, with regard to the other programs of social protection in india particularly the public distribution system where we have a minimum uh, guarantee of accessing food grains uh, through that program but the problem is that diluting the whole vision of that program to targeting and uh, and, uh, and 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 actually reducing the quota of food grain to be availed by this poor poorer families again the what the debate that we discussed just now about the poverty concept because is all about linked with that uh, accessing food grains through public distribution system so apart from that i mean we do have success where the families who actually have availed public distribution i mean the food grains within the public distribution system their poverty levels really actually improved if you look at the remote corner of the country and apart from that we do have success stories on mid day meal scheme on uh, where the school feeding program is all about and uh, we have integrated child development services is the preschooling uh, nutritional program for the uh, children within the age group of 0 to 6 and uh, we have all the success stories but uh, if you look at the budgetary trend of all these success uh, programs 
it's basically uh, i mean diluting the whole 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 uh, whole notion of uh, funding within a federal structure that we have in india from central government to the provincial governments and uh, i mean shifting the responsibility of provisioning for all these kind of programs at the provincial level now is actually uh, uh, increasingly coming up with this uh, 14 finance commission's recommendation but the whole problem is that we were discussing just now even almost 7 months actually passed for this financial year particularly when nobody knows what will happen to these major major uh, programs of uh, school feeding or even 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 the the icds uh, or even to some extent the the national social assistance program for the elderly population so so it's, it's, uh, it's nobody knows what will happen to that uh, cut in the program funding from the federal government so say so there is there are bizarre kind of situation now but if you look at the even countries across the world where the social protection spending particularly particularly in uh, in uh, south asia south asia or even in the uh, sub saharan african countries where the social protection expenditure as percentage of gdp is actually on a lower count if you look at or compare with the situation of uh, what exactly countries of western europe and central and eastern europe countries are actually performing and uh, the most important thing is that within that if you look at i mean the whole 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 gamut of social protection expenditure if you look at the healthcare expenditure which is now increasingly coming up uh, as a serious concern uh, across countries and even the policy makers that health expenditure is actually not improving over the years and which is a major contribution to the i mean the the component of social protection expenditure and if you look at the other parts of the social protection expenditure that includes the elderly i mean provisioning for the elderly and even the child care uh, protection expenditure it's not actually seen any any sort of improving trend over the years and the recently i i i, I must quote that uh, when we studied of uh, around 60 countries and looking at the social protection expenditure and linking with with the hunger and malnutrition of uh, particularly the the agrarian community and within that the family farming concept then we found for our listeners this is a study done by professor jha and nilachal acharya for who did you do it for yeah it's basically we just produce a art, produce an article for uh, economic and political weekly. weekly yes and when is it going to be published do you think it can be linked the link can be shared when we publish this particular episode yes yeah, sure sure hope hope so 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 the whole thing is that if you look at uh, the 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 connection of provisioning social protection and in its linkage with the eradication of hunger and malnutrition within the whole agrarian community and within that the small and marginal farmers we do find we we find very very i mean interesting and uh, and strong positive correlation countries those who have provisioned more towards social provisioning social protection and uh, having lesser amount of, of addressing addressing all those concerns relating to social protection deepa don't we see uh, here this uh, argument being invoked over and over again that social protection programs have too many leakages they're very corrupt and hence there should be budget cuts because why should be taxpayers be paying money to be stolen away uh, this is again i think an excuse that's given repeatedly in india but if you look at the programs that nilachal just mentioned if you look at the public distribution system the mgnrega there's a lot of evaluation that has been done by independent researchers by government's own data which shows that these programs are doing fairly well secondly also that the leakages are decreasing so we are actually learning ways of doing them better so that they reach people and therefore this is not the time to actually cut them down but a time to expand 
if you look at the school midday meals again there's a lot of research to show that it improved enrollment it improved attendance it is also contributing to nutrition sure there are leakages but then do we throw the baby out of the bathwater or do we look at ways in which they can perform better and in india itself there are great examples of how these schemes are doing well because it's such a big country and we have so much regional variation so if you look at a state like say tamil nadu where the public distribution system has less than 5% leakages or even chatisgarh a poorer newer state which has very low leakages in pds or in mgnrega there are examples of areas where there is been mobilization at the ground level where there is greater transparency and accountability where leakages have not happened so this i think is more of an excuse to not spend straw man argument absolutely because there is a lot of evidence to show that not only are they reaching people but also that they have many spin off Uh, effects also like say pds helps even farmers because procurement is happening for distribution to uh, happen with the rural employment guarantee program because so many people were getting minimum wages that had an upward pressure on wages in general so the other benefits also which are never measured professor jha i've actually heard you make this polemical and very good party rebuttal in a lot of these tv shows saying that how uh, the most corrupt uh, sectors are actually defense procurement and real estate and all and nobody talks about urban development and budget cuts in those or defense procurement and budget cuts in those but every time it comes to poor programs for the poor we are always clamoring for budget cuts that, can you make another <laughs> one of those reporting arguments that 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 is the name of the beast that is the kind of political economy that we are engaging with so when it comes to leakages uh, all kinds of corruption issues etc we start talking about those who are the most vulnerable and uh, there is this argument made that these programs must be improved and if you can improve these in any case their needs can be taken care of even with half, half the provisioning or one quarter of the provisioning and so on now you know you sort of are essentially talking of a situation where it is simply overlooked who is it that can be considered responsible for corruption is it the case that all these poor vulnerable people are responsible for whatever is happening under corruption or there is a line of interested parties you know who possibly should be held accountable responsible etc now ideally we should be asking those questions right uh, likewise you know when we talk of corruption and leakages etc we simply forget possibly the biggest leakage which uh, one would like to highlight i mean if you look at the total collection under direct taxes see what it is as a percentage of the total exemptions you know after tax rates have been decided after that we give all kinds of exemptions and so on now you're talking of something which is somewhere between 33 to 40 odd percent and that's right. for the super rich no no i'm i'm yeah, i'm talking of uh, the exemptions yeah. uh, and you take exemption is your denominator and you are talking of what gets collected right as you know sort of in terms of numbers as a proportion of that through direct taxes right. right now much of it of course is for people who are well off uh, i'm not suggesting for a moment that uh, every exemption is bad and terrible and so on and so forth but if you look at the total exemptions and what's happening there so that is something which needs to be put in perspective uh, 
the whole question of corruption, etc., leakages and so on and so forth. I mean, that's a kind of subsidy which, which is, uh, I mean, to my mind, possibly the biggest corruption which is going on. Right? Now, why don't we talk of that? Exemption as yeah. a subsidy. Yeah, yeah. exemption as a subsidy and a great deal of it is something which is simply corruption. Right? I mean, corruption not in the sense of conventional right. term, but basically it's a corruption of the political system, of the economic system, of the system that we are part of. Right? And instead of behaving like an ostrich, when we don't want to see all this and simply want to tighten the belts of those who possibly do not even have a waist anymore, right? we should you know, ideally be talking about this particular group. And so this, this, is, this is just bizarre. So as somebody once said that uh, with reference to this slogan called Garibi Hatao, ki Garibi Hatane ka sabse badhya tarika hai ki Garib ko hata do. So once you make them invisible from the canvas that you are engaging with, right, of course, you know, poverty has gone because you have simply made it invisible. Right? Right. So yes, I would, I, I, and the last point that I, you know, today's newspaper, some of you may have noticed this uh, research uh, outfit of HSBC. Now it says that uh, there was so much talk about taking care of health, etc. And this is referring to some Lancet research, right? And uh, it says that it appears that health has figured from any policy discourse at the current juncture as regards the union government. Now, I would only say that it's not only the health which has disappeared. Uh, you know, um, midday meal schemes and food security schemes. I was uh, uh, informed by Nilachal that uh, yesterday's or today's newspapers are talking about how the union government has decided to wash its hands off from uh, uh, many of these uh, provisionings. Uh, as he already mentioned that uh, since this argument gets touted all the time that resources have been transferred to the states, you know, which itself is a false argument because it's only under one head that there has been greater allocation if you look at the entirety. In fact, as a proportion of GDP, the total allocation for all the states will go down in this year, assuming you know, uh, we sort of realize the growth rates which have been projected and so on. Right. Yeah? For our listeners, since this is an explainer series, we will also provide the link for Center for Budget and Governance Accountability, and you can look at some of these studies that Professor Jha just mentioned and some of this budget trend analysis. Finally, going back to the UB40 heartwarming number and the story of success of social protection at the peak of Thatcherite policies, um, we've heard Deepa from you and your skepticism about the meta-narrative and why that needs to be talked. But do you at, at least think that there is a possibility of this public movement being built and so universal social protection actually becoming a reality for the entire world? Yeah, so my skepticism is with this global UN-led process. But I think I'm very optimistic when it comes to a public movement, people mobilizing themselves. And I think that's where change will come from eventually. And that's bound to happen. Uh, especially with rising inequality and the kind of politics we are seeing. I think it, it will come, the moment will come at some point. Nilachal, your final thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, uh, it's important that uh, there is a need for uh, engaging on this issue and uh, it's possible that uh, social protection, I mean universal social protection, because uh, we did uh, uh, take up a couple of uh, studies where we actually 
computed how much would it require to universalize any sort of public distribution system or even universalizing ICDS or universalizing social protection programs, particularly the old age uh, pension schemes. And we see, uh, we saw that uh, it's absolute possible within the framework of given, uh, I mean, the present economic context. And uh, the one important aspect I would like to say as a final thought, see, there's a recent report of FAO which talk about uh, uh, eradicating world hunger sustainably would require only 267 billion per annum. And $160 per person. Per person. And uh, in fact, if you convert it into as a percentage of GDP, this is only 0.3% of world GDP. So in such a scenario, I mean, this is these are the possible ways that you can look at uh, the numbers and say that this is possible. Please listen to that. It's just 0.3% of the global GDP. Professor Jha, yes, your final thoughts. Yeah, this, is, uh, uh, this is following what Deepa said, that uh, ultimately it is whether you have powerful political, public movements, mobilizations, etc. So globally, when I took a look at the world today, on the one hand, you have uh, this evil axis of neoliberalism and uh, much of the powerful overlords of the global economy are part of that. And then you have a good access, you know, a kind of uh, uh, coming together of the progressive vision and uh, that good access manifests itself through the power of political and public movements and mobilizations, etc. to a large extent in Latin America at the current juncture. But uh, obviously, inspirations can be drawn from there. We see what's happening in southern Europe. We, 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 yesterday's uh, election results, for instance, uh, you have uh, Trudeau Jr. in Canada. So clearly, you know, Justin Trudeau. Uh, it is, it is, it is uh, possible. It is possible. But then, the important point is, there has to be, it can't be led by a bunch of characters Ooh. At some stratospheric level, like the United <laughs> exactly, Nations. Exactly, yeah. right, right, right. Professor Klammer, banks are being bailed out, people are not. And social protection is a case for actually supporting people rather than banks. Wrap it up for us. Well, I think that's right. I mean, I think if we're going to talk about rising inequality, the first question that always occurs to me is why that inequality is rising. It's not like the tide, you know, this is not a natural phenomenon. It has, it has its roots in social policy, in politics and economics. And I think it's very important to, you know, explicate what those things are. Um, I think it's important to think in comparative terms, you know, the terms of social protection, we're, we're looking at a moving target, not at a fixed thing. You know, in Asia, we've got a problem of an aging population and the pressure that's going to put on medical care. In Europe now, you've got the problem of vast numbers of refugees and migrants arriving. And these are, I think, going to change the nature of the way in which we talk about social protection. And at the same time, you know, when we use the word protection, I kind of like to think of it literally, not only as, you know, the provision of social services, but literally protection, uh, being able to live in safety, including you know, the physical safety of people, you know, women in the streets, of children, uh, should also be part of the way in which we look at the whole phenomenon. Thank you for listening to News Laundry Podcast. I could not have summed it up better. So this was Global Summits, Where Are We Going? We would like to thank our collaborators, 
Save the Children India, the leading nonprofit dedicated to children for their support in bringing this program to you. This is part of their global campaign, Action 2015, to build public awareness and pressure on world leaders for just global deals for, for just world for all. This episode was produced by Karthik Nijhavan from Team News Laundry. In the next episode, we'll bring the curtain raiser to Climate Change Summit at Paris and India's pitch and participation at, as the equity champion on this forum, especially the kind of heavy lifting South Africa has done in the recently concluded negotiations at Bonn. We would love to hear from you. Give us your feedback, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and please support independent media so you can decide where are we going. This is Birad Swain signing off for News Laundry. Catch all new episodes of Global Summit's Where Are We Going on newslaundry.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook.